Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt, and I'm a board-certified integrative and functional nutritionist. I live on the seacoast of New Hampshire and work with clients in my virtual practice all over the world through private consultations and online nutrition and functional medicine programs. Functional medicine nutrition is all about diving deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. And that's exactly what I tackle in this podcast. All things health, food, and nutrition. Unpacking current research and almost a decade of clinical experience. I love to bring experts and thought leaders to the table so we can all learn together. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive in. Hello, my friends. Back with another episode. I hope everybody had a lovely Thanksgiving. Um, We traveled to Maryland to my in-laws and... I took the entire week off and it was glorious. And then we came home to a 48 hour snowstorm. So my daughter didn't have school Monday or Tuesday. Today's Wednesday, I'm recording this. And it's like my first day, quote unquote, back to work. And I feel so wonky and weird. Like what am I supposed to be doing right now? What's going on? But it was a pretty awesome holiday. And I just feel like we're like full swing in the holidays we go a little buck wild with decorating my house. (laughs) All the decorations are up for Christmas and we're just doing the most. So I'm excited about it. Um, I understand that the holidays aren't always the greatest time for everybody, but I am one of the people who truly enjoy them. So we are in it. Um, All right. Today we're going to talk all about the gut. I've been getting a lot of questions through Instagram um, about specific gut and digestive related stuff. And so I'm going to spend some time picking through it. Um, you know, it's, it's funny to see how questions come in because it just speaks to how we've been trained to look at nutrition and food and the human bodies and our health. It's like very clickbaity, like the top five foods you need for blah, 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 or like, uh, the three things you must do to blah, 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 blah. It's very, you know, it just makes it so easy, straightforward and black and white, which is like the complete opposite of how the human body actually works. So when I get a question that seems pretty straightforward, it usually requires like an hour to unpack it. So I'm going to get to your questions. I promise it's just going to take a while to pick through them. Um, but we'll learn a ton along the way. Here's the deal. Um, I've been doing a lot of trainings, uh, uh, specifically to the GI tract. So the microbiome, um, digestion, SIBO, I've really been diving into the nitty gritty, uh, specifically how it relates to like my clinical practice. Um, if people aren't responsive to the first round of treatment, we want to ask why, what's going on, what could, could be some underlying things happening. Um, but my plan is to share some of the like nuggets of wisdom if you will, along the way. The fact of the matter is that our understanding of the microbiome changes almost daily at this point. I mean, there's just so much research. We now know it used to sort of be like a underappreciated 
part of the body. Even when I was in college, um, the microbiome, which is all the, the bacteria and stuff living in your large intestine, um, we were like, yeah, I mean, it produces vitamin K. Like It wasn't really super well understood. And in the past, geez, like 10 to 15 years, that is starting to change. So most people have a general understanding that like, yeah, gut health is super important. It's arguably one of the most important things as it relates to our overall health. And uh, there's a lot of focus and research going into it, which is phenomenal. So we're learning things all the time. Um, our understanding of the microbiome is rapidly changing, which is all good stuff. And I'm trying to do my best to stay up to date with all the new information. And then my goal, because I, I don't like information just like sitting and rotting in my brain. What makes me like super happy and super fulfilled is learning information and then being able to teach that to other people hence the podcast. Um, so I want to take the, the information that I'm coming up with and trickle that down to you guys. So, you know, obviously here on the podcast, on my social media, and then really infiltrate my programs with the, um, the actionable steps of like, what do we do with this information? Speaking of the next carb compatibility project will be, I almost said will air. Nope. It will, um, start January 6th. So you can sign up now. You can sign up any point up into January 6th. I am absolutely going to infuse the new round of this with some gut microbiome restoration goodness. Um, I will be sharing some of my clinical food as medicine strategies. So like things that I actually do with my one-on-one -on -one clients. And then really talking about how to apply this data, which is so important. So I feel like this podcast is really like a lot of information. And then what we need to do with that information is apply it to our life, apply it to our diet. And that's where these programs come into play. It really gives you the tools to implement this stuff. And especially with today's episode, I'm going to be talking a lot about food as medicine and a lot about how we can feed our gut. That's the whole the whole um, topic of this show is how the heck do we feed our guts? How do we nourish our microbiome, the thing that is so important? Um, but if your head feels like it's spinning by the end of the show, don't worry. I will hold your hand through the actionable steps in my carb compatibility project. And this is a, a new announcement that I haven't said publicly anywhere else, but as of 2020, which is in like, uh, what, 28 days, um, I will not be accepting new clients into my private practice unless they've gone through one of my programs, whether that be fueled and fit the carb compatibility project or your hormone revival. So that is the first step to working with me one-on-one. -on -one. My whole goal here is I'm trying to prepare people for their best clinical outcome for, for your greatest success. I want you to feel good. I want you to get the results you're after. So I have to, um, design things in a way that gets you there. And in my opinion, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to dive into the functional medicine work, the functional lab testing that those high level therapeutic interventions, if you haven't first done the basics. And when I say the basics, I'm talking diet, so eating a whole foods diet 
where you're, you've already removed the biggest triggers. So if somebody coming to me eating the standard, standard American diet, it doesn't make sense in my eyes to spend the money to work with me, to spend the money on the functional lab testing um, before you clean up your diet. You gotta do that, that first. So diet's a big one. Blood sugar regulation is huge. In Again, in my opinion, um, there's no sense trying to fix your hormones or trying to fix your thyroid if you haven't first worked on your blood sugar. You have to get that regulated. And then also the lifestyle piece, the mindfulness, the stress management, all of that's really important. Um, and this is why I think that the CCP is so great, uh, the Carb Compatibility Project, just because it encompasses all of these things, all of the basic stuff, like the starting point, the ground zero. Um, and just so you know, even if you don't want to go super low carb with with this, you can still do the program. Uh, you don't have to take it as low as a ketogenic diet. And in fact, the vast majority of people who do this program don't end up that low carb. Um, you certainly can, it's available to you. If you want to explore that, totally go for it. It's, you know, was my original intention in creating the program, but some folks just get the results that they're after without having to drop their carbs that low. And I think that's pretty phenomenal. So don't be scared away by that. If you're, you're like, oh, I don't want to go that low carb. No big deal. You totally don't have to. Um, but again, I think you always have to start with the food as medicine approach. And that is still the work that I'm offering, but it's through these programs, not through my one-on-one -on -one stuff. Um, and the programs, the carb compatibility project is awesome in that you still get that interaction with me. So the fueled and fit is, is now a self-study that's 21 day whole foods, uh, real foods diet, how to grocery shop, how to prepare your food, how to integrate all of these things, totally self-study. You can buy that anytime and do it at any time. The CCP I'm, I'm running you through that in real time. And we're doing weekly Facebook Q and A's. Um, so you get to ask me specific questions as they relate directly to you. And that's, this is surprising to me. Um, I don't really know why it's surprising to me, but it is. Um, that's the biggest piece of feedback that I get from my programs is that the interaction, like having the ability to ask me questions is like the biggest takeaway for a lot of people. It's what sets my programs apart from other online programs because as you're going through stuff, as questions come up, you can fire them away at me and I can help you decide what is best for you, what is best for your body and all that kind of jazz. So that's that. And one more announcement about the CCP is I am now making it available to vegans and vegetarians. Um, I have in the past turned away vegans because, um, the way that the program was structured, I just thought it would be too hard. It wasn't really appropriate. There were some, you know, some of the, the, um, the recipes included meat and I just, it wasn't structured for a vegetarian, but I'm changing that up a little bit. So it will be more appropriate for vegans. So it will be available to you guys. Um, especially with the increasing awareness of plant-based diets. I don't want to close anybody off to this program. So come on in. It is, I mean, whether or not you're eating meat, this program is 100% a plant-based diet. Like there's a ton of plants and we're going to talk about that more as we pick through today's show. Um, 
but now uh, you can do it even if you don't eat meat. And I'll we'll, we'll be including my favorite protein, vegan protein sources, uh, favorite vegan protein powders, um, a guide so you can help determine uh, what nutrients you should be the most mindful of and like where you can get those nutrients using food as medicine. All right, so let's get into it. Let's talk about the microbiome. So we have all different microbiomes. We have a microbiome in our mouth. We have a microbiome in our nose. We have microbiome in our vagina. We have microbiomes in our gut. Today, we're talking about the gut microbiome and they of course interact with each other. I mean, if you think about the microbiome in your mouth, obviously that's impacting your gut because you're swallowing saliva and you're swallowing bacteria every time you swallow and it's going all the way down into your gut. So they're, they're interactive, but today we're really focusing specifically on the gut microbiome. And as I said, it's no longer this underappreciated thing. And in fact, gut health is so mainstream that even MLMs are now using it to market their products, which is not great. Um, and I'm going to get into a full-blown conversation about all of this in an upcoming podcast, so stay tuned. But you, I, I feel like that's if you're starting to see it in in mainstream media, then you know it is you know uh, you know it's a big deal. Okay, the the microbiota is really like an organ it has so many different functions and it impacts your health in your body from top to tail. So one big thing that it does is help to modulate the immune system. It protects against allergy development. It protects against food sensitivities, um, protects against viruses and uh, bacteria and other type of pathogens. If you think about it, our, our digestive tract is a tube and it's an enclosed tube. It starts at the mouth. It ends at the anus. It's like one long thing, right? And it doesn't, it's, it's technically outside the body because it doesn't intermingle with the rest of the body. And it's the way that we bring the outside world in, right? We're bringing the outside world in as we eat food. So we need uh, a large degree of immunity in our digestive tract in order to, to help us differentiate friend from foe. And the microbiome plays a humongous role in this. Uh, protects against um, colonization, so colonization resistance. Um, it helps us with gut motility. I did a whole recent episode on constipation and gut motility. The microbiome is a key player in that. Nutrient status, so it helps us produce our B vitamins. It helps produce vitamin K. Um, it helps with mineral absorption, like calcium, magnesium, and zinc. So we're getting even more nutrients from our microbes that live in our gut. Um, it plays a role in weight management, blood sugar control, insulin control. So the whole like metabolic process uh, plays a big role in mood management. So there's a very big connection from, uh, from the gut to the brain and um, our moods. Um, inflammation. So either inflammation localized to the gut or widespread systemic inflammation. And then it also is necessary for the production of short chain fatty acids, which we will talk about later. So it has a lot of jobs and it's important that it's functioning appropriately. 
Um, another thing that it does, which is so cool, is that the bacteria, the microbes that live in our gut can activate certain botanicals. So for example, we consume polyphenols in plants. It's one of the, the reasons that plants are so important. Polyphenols help to give plants their color. It's like that whole eat the rainbow thing, right? The more color you get, the more widespread nutrition you'll get, but also you get more of these polyphenols and they're really good for us, right? They have a lot of um, profound health impacts, but we need the microbes in our gut to essentially turn on these phytochemicals. We need the microbes to make these things therapeutic. 90 to 95% of polyphenols are unabsorbed by us. Like our human bodies are not able to access the medicine in polyphenols, but they get all the way down to the colon and then the bacteria activate them. Um, so things like curcumin and pomegranate, for example, like bacteria turn them on. They unlock the medicinal benefits of these herbs, of these plants. And then we get to reap the health benefits. And uh, this process isn't happening if we don't have enough beneficial bacteria. So if our microbiome is off or we have dysbiosis, imbalance in the microbiome, this isn't happening. And this could be a good reason why people nowadays are less sensitive to herbal medicine because we have this rampant dysbiosis, this rampant imbalance in the gut. So. Uh, back in the day, we relied on herbal medicine to have these really profound effects on our health, and they're simply not doing the job that they once did. And then um, one more thing uh, the microbiome helps with is de detoxification. So the more um, diverse the microbiome, the more chemicals you can detox from your system, which is very, very, very important as we live in modern day when we're, our bodies are just being um, essentially infiltrated by all of these man-made, potentially toxic chemicals. We have to really fire up our detox pathways, both in the liver, but also in the gut. And you guys know uh, I'm a big stickler about this. I talk about this a lot, so it should come as no surprise. But um, the cool thing is that different species of bacteria um, are responsible for doing different detoxic detoxification pathways. So diversity is important. The more species we have, the more chemicals we'll be able to detoxify from our body. But diversity is really the name of the game for everything. In order for the microbes to do all of these jobs and have all of those functions that I just discussed and, and really work appropriately, our microbiome needs to be diverse. It has to have a lot of different species. Um, and we need to have a lot of them. So abundance and diversity are the two biggest things. Our overall health depends on diversity. And that is true, not just for our gut, but like any ecosystem, the more diverse an ecosystem is, the healthier it's going to be. Unfortunately, that is not the current state of our microbiomes. In fact, our microbiomes are shrinking. In the US, the United States is the number one country with the least diverse 
microbiome. So we have like the worst microbiomes. It's referred to as the westernization of our guts. Um, so we, we don't have a lot of diversity in our food. We're lacking exposure to nature. We're going to talk about different reasons why we're lacking diversity, but it's obviously having a, a pretty negative impact on our overall health. Lack of diversity can lead to asthma and allergies in kiddos. You know, we know how prevalent that is these days. It can, lack of diversity can lead to obesity, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, type two diabetes, all things that are really on the rise. Uh, lack of diversity can lead to high cholesterol, high triglycerides and body-wide inflammation. Um, and also autoimmunity, right? So it's like these, these diseases, these chronic illness diseases, um, are really a reflection of the fact that we are, are, we're not exposed to, um, to the diversity that we really need to be in order to stay healthy. So we have to look at the different factors that diversity depends on. This is a pretty long, complex conversation. Um, so I'm going to get into like, you know, some fast facts in this show, but if you want a more in-depth, deep dive into all of this, I recommend my, what the gut online workshop. It's like a two and a half hour workshop. You can buy it and watch it at any time. Um, I, I, I attempt to answer the question, why are kid allergies so common? Um, because you know, that's something that comes up when you start talking about the state of the gut, that it's just a question that I get often. Like, well, back in my day, kids weren't allergic to peanuts. I mean, I'm 35 back in my day, kids weren't allergic to peanuts. So like I hear that. So we really have to explore and pick apart what the heck is going on. Why are these food allergies and, um, chronic conditions in kiddos so much more prevalent? Why are so many little kids on prescription meds? You know, like what the heck is going on? Um, but we also really get into the whole gut thing. And as a b -b 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 bonus for anybody who signs up for the CCP in January, I'm also going to throw this workshop in for free. So you'll get free access to this. Um, just because I'm so like microbiome happy right now, it's just something that I would like to do for you guys. So, um, think about that. Um, but really, it's not a simple answer. It never is. There's a lot of factors that contribute to all this stuff. Um, and this workshop really gives an, a comprehensive overview of where things went wrong and what we can do about it moving forward. All right. So a few important factors uh, about that look at, like, why are we lacking diversity? We have to look at the origin of the microbiome. And the origin is from your mother. So, you know, you, when you're gestating in your mom's womb, you start to get exposure to some of mom's microbiome. So we have to think about like, you know, what's the state of mom's microbiome. If you know your mom has like real profound GI dysfunction and you do too, like that's no coincidence, right? Um, so like what's mom, what was mom's exposure while you, she was pregnant with you? Was she high stress? That can change the microbiome. Um, what was her diet like? You know, all that kind of stuff. But most importantly, our, our, our big inoculation comes in as we are birthed through the vaginal canal. 
So if you were birthed via a C-section, that's going to make a big difference on your microbiome versus if you are born through the vagina because you miss that initial inoculation, okay? We know that C-sections are on the rise. They're way more common than they ever were. They're very common in the U.S. And so this help begins to explain why uh, the U.S. microbiome is just super suffering and um, uh, in, in lacking diversity. And I'm not making a judgment with that statement. I'm just here to report the facts. Those are the facts. Same deal with the next thing. Were you, uh, my bad, were you breastfed or were you bottle fed? Because those make a huge difference. Um, breastfed babies have a more diverse, rich, abundant, resilient microbiome. Um, also, whether you grew up or live in a rural versus in an urban environment. So if you had exposure to animals, if you had exposure to farms, if you had exposure to soil, all of those things really play into the development of your microbiome and the diversity that's there. Now, if you do live in an urban environment, there are things that you can do to enhance that exposure, things like organic gardening, getting your hands in the soil, um, any type of farm exposure, eating unwashed raw produce from the farm because that raw food will have bacteria on it from the soil. So you're consuming those microbes that will help um, as those microbes are working through your system in transit, that will help to increase the diversity of your gut. Um, a big thing that essentially wipes out diversity in the microbiome is antibiotic use. So if you had a lot of childhood antibiotic use, um, children of the 80s and 90s, what, what, I'm talking to you, um, they just hammered our systems with antibiotics, right? Fortunately, as we start to understand the microbiome more, we're starting to understand the, the far-reaching deleterious uh, effects of using these antibiotics. So we're less trigger happy, right? With antibiotics, which is a good thing. Um, but you know, if you had a lot of exposure to antibiotics as a child, that's going to affect your diversity, even into adulthood. Um, chances are your ecosystem, your gut ecosystem is a lot more fragile and a lot less diverse. And then frequency of antibiotics. Um, so the more antibiotics that you've used, the less diverse your microbiome is. And with each course of antibiotics, your diversity is reduced, right? So the more, the more antibiotics, the less diverse. Now, there are some species of microbes that live in your gut that have the ability to rebound post-antibiotic use but you can and do lose peripheral species with each course of antibiotics. Um, and that's real, you know, and that's the truth. Um, the worst offender seems to be antibiotic cocktails. So when you're taking three or four antibiotics in a short period of time, you know, to kill off an infection, uh, this leads to the biggest decrease in diversity and the biggest loss of species. And they have really long-term effects. Like I'm talking years sometimes. So this isn't just, um, you know, I take antibiotics and then I eat some Activia. Like it doesn't work that way. We're going to get into more of the nitty gritty of why it doesn't work that way. But some, you know, this is like, this can have a very 
long-term effect and some species can even go extinct. Like you lose the ability to grow them back. They're gone. Once they're gone, they're gone for good. So we really have to obviously think long and hard about our use of antibiotics. Obviously they're necessary for some things, but not all things. Other things that impact our diversity, lack of sleep, totally. Um, our circadian rhythm affects the microbiome. Our, all of our body, all different parts of our body exist on different rhythms and the microbiome is no exception. So if you travel a lot, that can throw off your microbiome. If you travel for work, let's say, that's going to impact your gut health. That is the harsh reality of the situation. Um, so some things to counteract this is to do your best to eat and sleep at the same time. The more you can get on a schedule, the, the healthier my, your microbiome tends to be. Now, I know how the human brain exists and functions within the context of diet culture. And I know a lot of you are going to hear what I just said and start thinking of intermittent fasting and start thinking of food rules and start thinking of like, uh oh, I can't eat after a certain period of time. And I just want to pause you there if your brain's doing a runaway train right now and notice the, to the toxic diet culture mentality that's taking over. And then I want you to revisit what I just said about sleep. Work on your sleep, go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at the same time every night, get eight hours of sleep every night. Do that, worry less about the food, right? We, we, our brains wanna just dive into food first. How can I focus on the food? How can I micromanage the food? How can I restrict more? How can I create more food rules? Because that feels safe to a lot of us because that's the culture that we're steeped in, right? And I'm not saying that timing of eating is irrelevant. It can absolutely impact the microbiome's ability to control insulin uh, and determine how it processes energy. But I just don't want you guys to fixate on that point, especially if you have a history of fixating on food rules and restrictions. Focus on the sleep instead, okay? Let the food stuff go, go by the wayside, focus on the sleep. So you wanna get to sleep at the same time, get enough sleep. Um, if it's appropriate, eat at the same time exercise at the same time. That's another thing that can really help to set the pace of the microbiome and don't overtrain. So that's a big one too. We know that a sedentary lifestyle, so not moving much at all, leads to lower diversity of the microbiome, but too much exercise can also lead to lower diversity. So if you're wondering about what's appropriate for you, go back to my uh, episode where I talk about, I can't remember the, the exact number off the top of my head, but where I talk about overtraining and overexercise and adrenal fatigue and all that kind of stuff that can help you create um, your own appropriate threshold. Um, other things that impact diversity. Um, NSAID use. So NSAID stands for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So things like ibuprofen, uh, Advil, Motrin, uh, Aleve, Aspirin, um, all of those have antimicrobial effects, believe it or not, and can result in reduced diversity of your microbiome. So really, really reserve these things for more of like an emergency case NSAIDs are not medications that you should be taking every day or really every week. If you need to rely on these things regularly, there's something 
else that's going on that needs to be addressed. So do some root cause investigation. Um, things that I use instead to lower inflammation. So if like uh, uh, joint pain, for example, um, I really like high dose turmeric or curcumin. Um, and they have the added benefit of having nourishing effects on the microbiome and on the lining of the gut, whereas NSAIDs destroy the microbiome and destroy the lining of the gut. It basically, like we know that um, NSAIDs can eat away at the lining of your stomach. Well, guess what? It can do that in your small intestine too, leading to leaky gut. So um, I would recommend doing some curcumin. CBD can be really great for pain. Um, an inflammation. And then if you're experience, if you're taking, I know people will pop like Motrin or Advil for menstrual pain. First of all, do my hormone program, your hormone revival, because we talk about how that's not super normal and ways to, um, ways to figure out what's going on and why your pain is so bad, but also doing anti-inflammatories like ginger, curcumin, and omega-3 fatty acids can be really helpful during that time. So we're not just leaning on um, NSAIDs, which are causing long-term damage to the gut. And then PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, these are like acid-blocking drugs, uh, Nexium, Prevacid, Prilosec, Protonics. They are one of the worst class of drugs in my eyes because their effects are devastating to the body, devastating to the body. And they're not designed for long-term use. They're designed for short-term use and people are being put on them long-term. And that's a really bad thing. I've talked about them on the show before. I will continue to talk about them within the context of this particular conversation. Um, people on PPIs long-term have the same low diversity as someone on long-term antibiotics. I mean, come on now, not good. So if you're on PPIs, try to make it your goal. Obviously this is not medical advice, but I would, it's not a bad goal to try to get off the PPIs. And again, it's that root cause investigative work. Why are you having reflux? What's going on in the GI tract to necessitate the use of a PPI? Okay, now some other things um, that are less talked about that can harm the microbiota. Um, natural things like grapefruit seed extract, essential oils like oregano oil and um, lavender oil and other things that we might be ingesting. Again, I'm going to do a whole entire episode really breaking down why this is a bad thing, but I just wanted to shout out, do not self-treat your gut with essential oils. They can have a very uh, negative consequence, okay? And again, we'll get into that in an upcoming show, we'll get into the nitty gritty and it's just not good practice to do. You're basically, uh, you're, you can cause a lot of, um, you can cause a lot of problems. Let's just leave it at that, moving on. Another thing you wanna avoid is glyphosate. Yeah, glyphosate is the main ingredient in Roundup. Um, we use four and a half billion pounds of glyphosate annually every year. Four and a half billion, B, billion with a B, pounds of this chemical. That is scary stuff. It's used as an herbicide. So we, um, 
uh, we spray it on our lawns to kill off weeds. We, we treat our, most of our produce with it for the same reason. The way that it works is by inhibiting a certain enzyme, EPSPS, which is a key component of something called the shikimate pathway. Now, this enzyme is found in plants, but it's not found in animals or humans, which is why glyphosate is considered safe. But, and this is a big but, this enzyme is also found in other living things like bacteria, fungus, and microbes in our soil. And because of this, glyphosate, Roundup, can actually function as an antibiotic pausing for dramatic effect. We just talked about why antibiotics are so bad for our microbiome. Hey, guess what? Same deal here. On top of that, the shikimate pathway makes essential amino acids. It's one of the, the reasons for that pathway. So when we block the enzyme of this pathway, Roundup also blocks essential amino acids in our food that we need. Um, as Dr. Zach Bush says, we are deleting the medicine out of our food. So we're treating our food chain with a chemical that blocks plants' ability to make building blocks for a healthy human body. We're deleting the medicine out of food. We're, we're subtracting out of food the ability to build the human body. This is a big deal. This is like scary, keep me up at night, gives me goose pimples when I think about it stuff. This is not okay. I highly, highly, highly recommend listening to uh, Dr. Zach Bush on the Rich Roll podcast. It's such a great and informative conversation. It will really make you rethink um, our entire food system, the pharmaceutical industry, and you'll begin to understand the interplay between the both of them. Uh, it's one conversation I wish that everybody would listen to. He's a super smart guy, but he's also really, I don't know how to des describe him. He's kind of like a gentle, compassionate guy. I, I really have, I, I, he's, he's one of my favorites. I think he's one of the good ones. Um, he's somebody you could listen to for, for a long, long time. And he ends the conversation on a positive note, on an empowering note. So I like it. It's not just all doom and gloom and like scare tactics. He's like, hey, here's what's going on. As a consumer, as a human being living on planet Earth, you need this information. And then, hey, here's what we can do about it. I love it. I, I highly, highly recommend. It's a long episode. It's, I think it might be almost two hours, but super, super important. Okay, so you, we have to avoid glyphosate by buying organic food to the best of our ability as much as possible, all that. Um, and obviously, don't use Roundup on your own lawn. It leaches into the water systems. It's bad news bears. Okay, and then BPA. I won't spend too much time here, but just understand that BPA, the plasticizer that we all know and love, affects the microbiome. So it's just one more reason to stop using plastic. Stop using plastic. Stop it. Everyone knows better and we do it anyway. We gotta stop that. Um, okay, and then of course we have to look at diet, right? Of course we have to talk about food, hello. Um, there are certain dietary risk factors for dysbiosis, and some of them might surprise you. So the, 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 I would say the number one dysbiosis-inducing diet is the standard American diet. That one probably doesn't surprise you. It's very high in processed carbohydrates. It's very low in fibers. It's high in 
saturated fats, it's high in animal proteins. Now these two things are not bad per se, but when you're eating, consuming a lot of um, full, in, uh, man-made fats, inflammatory fats, and also consuming a lot of saturated fats, and also consuming a lot of animal proteins without consuming enough plants, without consuming enough fibers, that's not a good thing. That's actually um, can negatively impact the health of your gut. Um, so I'm always a proponent of eating a plant-based diet, even when you're including animal protein. I think, you know, like the healthiest diet, I'll go f as far to say this, I, I think the healthiest diet for the average person is a plant-based diet that includes well-sourced, some, some well-sourced animal proteins. I probably just pissed off everybody by saying that because like everybody likes to stand hard in one camp or the other. And I'm like, yeah, I might have got my feet in all of the camps. Um, but that's just what the research seems to say, you know? So let's move on. Um, but this is the thing that might surprise you in terms of dietary risk factors for dysbiosis is restrictive diets. So Jason Hollerack says, the more we restrict plant foods from our dietary pattern, the greater reduction in diversity we tend to see over time. So the more that you restrict plants, the less diversity you will have in your gut. We know that that's a problem because we need diversity to have good health in our microbiome and in our overall body and our immune system, all the things. So what are some restrictive diets? Well, the ketogenic diet might be one, right? Doing high fat, low carb, same with a high protein, low carbohydrate diet. Same with AIP, autoimmune paleo, same with SIBO diets, low FODMAP diets. Now it doesn't necessarily have to be this way, but it often is because people go on these diets and by default, they tend to eat less plant matter. Um, and they end up being low, low fiber diets. Um, they might be lower in plant diversity, all this kind of stuff. I mean, low FODMAP certainly is. Low FODMAP is low diversity diet, 100%. Um, there's a time and a place for a low FODMAP diet, but it really shouldn't be used long term, in my opinion. Um, but people, like, let's use the ketogenic diet, for example. People go on that, and it's like internet keto. It's like mayonnaise and bacon and cheese and steaks. And where's the plants, right? We need the plants to feed our microbiome. Um, when we cut out major plant food sources, that has its consequences. When you lose diversity of plant fibers, when you lose colors, when you lose those polyphenols, you lose diversity in your microbiome. And again, there can be therapeutic purposes to implement these diets. I am not knocking them, right? There's a time and a place for sure, but these dietary approaches need to be designed well and the potential negative consequences need to be taken into account. So you have to have a deep and rich understanding of the consequences of taking out food groups. You are the custodian of a very fragile ecosystem, your microbiome. So you have to take good care of it. Um, so you might have to supplement around your diet in order to prevent these negative side effects. Um, you know, it, it might just require a little bit more work for you. 
So this is something that I absolutely take into account with the carb compatibility project. I specifically designed the program with this in mind. So we can reduce our carbohydrates. We can reduce the, um, the pro-inflammatory uh, stuff in our diet while also honoring the microbiome, tending to the microbiome, nourishing it, nurturing it. So we don't, you know, what is the saying? Like rob Peter to pay Paul. Is that it? Who even knows? But you know, we don't do one thing that might help us while also harming us in the same breath. Okay. So how do we improve diversity because that's kind of what we need to do, right? If most of us are running around with low diversity in our guts, how do we rebuild the diversity? Obviously avoid all the stuff that we just talked about. That's why I just spent like 30 minutes talking about it to the best of your ability, avoid that stuff. You also might want to consider taking prebiotic supplements. I talked about this a little bit in the constipation episode. Um, I'll definitely talk about this more in depth in the, the carb compatibility project. It's stuff that I do in my clinical practice. I kind of pick and choose my prebiotics for people based on what they're experiencing, what their tests show, what's going on in their gut, all that kind of stuff. But dietarily, you want to eat a whole food, high fiber diet a diet that's um, high in whole plant foods. And diversity is so important here because certain microbes are like pigs. They'll just eat anything. But some microbes, some of the bacteria in your gut, the good bacteria, are very selective. They're very picky. So the more plant foods we eat, the more diverse those plant foods are, the greater the chance that we will have of feeding those picky microbes, the, the greater diversity of our ecosystem. Because if we don't feed our microbes, they can die off, right? We don't want that to happen. So even if you are eating a high plant matter diet, you have to investigate, is it diverse? Are you rotating your plants out? Are you eating multiple species throughout the day and throughout your week? Because many of us get stuck in the rut of eating the same five to 10 veggies over and over. And on, you know, from the outside looking in, it might appear to be a healthy diet, but most of us can really work on our diversity. And when I'm talking diversity, it really has to be plant fiber diversity. Animal diversity is good for other reasons, but it doesn't affect the microbiome in the same way. We need that plant fiber, plant food diversity that leads to the microbiota diversities, which is what we're after. And fiber really comes in all different shapes and forms. There's so many different types of fibers. So a hundred grams of fiber from apples and carrots is not going to be the same as a hundred grams of fiber from broccoli, sweet potatoes, raw nuts, raw seeds, legumes, apples, and carrots. Uh, it's the diversity in the diet that feeds a wider range of microbes and ultimately nourishes the microbiome. Okay. So fiber is not fiber is not fiber is not fiber. I know that the people will ask like, well, how many grams of fiber should I get per day? And it's like, well, it's really more about getting all the different types of fiber. And I will, um, bring those up and the different food sources that provide them in a, in a moment's time. So really we're shooting for diversity, um, multicolored whole plant foods, diversity of fibers. And the goal here is to shoot for 40 different species each week. Okay. So 40 different types of plants and 
it doesn't have to be super overwhelming because like three different types of apples count as three different species. Three different types of colored rice counts as three different species, like black rice, white rice, red rice. There you go. You got three different species, uh, three different types of sweet potatoes, purple sweet potatoes, Japanese sweet potatoes, regular yams, you know, count as three different species. Um, but you want to shoot for 40 different species and you want to shoot for a daily consumption of polyphenol rich foods, prebiotic rich foods, prebiotic like foods and resistant starch rich foods. So let's talk about what all of that means. Um, when we start to talk about foods that nourish and nurture the gut microbiome, the first thing that many of us think about is probiotics and fermented foods, right? Here's the deal with those. The bacteria in probiotics and the bacteria in, let's say, kombucha or yogurt or fermented veggies don't take up permanent residence in your gut. They can certainly improve things, um, but they're really only there as temporary visitors, one to two weeks at best. So while they're in transit, sort of traversing through your gut, they certainly do have health benefits, right? But they're not sticking around. They're not colonizing your gut. If you take a prescription antibiotic or you even take herbal antimicrobials like grapefruit seed extract or oregano oil and you wipe out like 10 species in your gut because the antibiotics kill off the bad guys, but they also kill off the good guys. And that is true for some of the herbal antibiotics as well. It's not as simple as taking a probiotic or eating some yogurt or drinking some kombucha to introduce those species back into the system. Um, if you're familiar with functional medicine's 5R protocol, the third R stands for re-inoculate. And it's always been like, yeah, I'll just take probiotics. But you cannot re-inoculate your gut with probiotics and kombucha. It's just not the way that it works. It's not a bad practice to include these foods into your diet. I mean, I certainly recommend that, especially if you're taking antibiotics. Um, it's kind of like if you think about your gut as a parking lot, right? a full parking lot. So every single space is taken up with cars. When you take antibiotics, you're killing off some of those bacteria. So you're opening up some parking spots. Taking probiotics sort of temporarily fills those parking spots. So it keeps the pathogenic bacteria and fungus from growing into those spaces. So it kind of like blocks them. So again, it is good practice. It's an important tool to utilize, but it's not reality to think that these things can just re-inoculate or read, reseed your gut. It is, it's it just not as, as simple and straightforward as that, unfortunately. Um, so many people will ask me like, what's a good probiotic to take? And I kind of hate answering that question, because personally, I'll use specific strains and specific products for specific clinical pur purposes in my practice. So it, it, it's hard for me to come up with an overall blanket recommendation because people are misunderstanding how probiotics actually work. It isn't, I take a probiotic and I get a healthy gut. I take a probiotic and I get more diversity in my gut. It just simply doesn't work that way. My, if I could give a general recommendation, it would be 
eat more plants. Like listen to this podcast episode, eat more plants, eat more plants than you are right now, eat way more plants than you think you need to, and maybe worry a little bit less about the probiotic because they're not doing exactly what you think that they might be. We really have to change the way that we view the microbiome and understand how fragile it is and the, the, the negative effects of that fragility. Um, we have to really protect this ecosystem. Okay. So when we're, when we're talking about foods that nurture and nourish the gut, it's really more about like, what are the foods that really do that? Um, and there's two different classes. The first is indigestible carbohydrates, which are fibers. Okay. So I talked about fibers a million times. Fibers are, um, we, we also, we also talked about it on the constipation episode quite a bit. And I want to go into like more food specific detail here. Cause I kind of just like threw out like soluble fiber, insoluble fiber. So let's get more into the nitty gritty. Um, they, Fibers escape digestion in the upper gut. They make their way all the way to the colon where they're used as food sources for microbes there. Um, and when, once they're there, they help to modulate the ecosystem. They can increase beneficial bacteria and decrease pathogenic bacteria. Our uh, bacteria ferment them and produce short chain fatty acids, which I was talking about earlier. These short chain fatty acids work two ways. They have localized effects in the gut because they're the primary fuel source for uh, colon cells. Um, we need them in order to maintain integrity of the intestinal barrier, right? We hear so much about leaky gut, which is essentially a broken barrier system short chain fatty acids are critical to, uh, prevent intestinal, intestinal permeability to prevent leaky gut. So if our bacteria aren't making them, that's a problem. Um, butyrate is one of the short chain fatty acids and it's the main foods, uh, food source for colon cells. It has anti-inflammatory effects. It decreases ab, uh, abdomen pain and fecal urgency and even visceral hypersensitivity in those with IBS. Um, so folks with IBS, if you're listening, you have IBS, you totally know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you just have to go to the bathroom like right away, right? Or you're like really sensitive in the gut. That's what visceral hypersensitivity is. Like you can feel your intestines. You can feel food move through your intestines. You can feel gas move through your intestines, real acute pain. Um, short chain fatty acids are, are necessary to prevent and, and decrease this. It, they also enhance motility in the colon, which we talked about in that constipation episode. But they're also super important for food sensitivities, believe it or not, um, in preventing food sensitivities. They help to make sure that we have an appropriate response to food protein so we don't overreact to foods. Um, I'm getting a lot of questions about food sensitivities, and I promise to do that in an upcoming show. It's just such a big topic that I'm, I'm really spending a lot of time curating that, that uh, information so it's well thought out. But this is a big thing because food sensitivities are on the rise and part of the reason is the dysbiosis. We don't have the beneficial bacteria that are producing the short chain fatty acids that help us 
regulate our immune system. If we don't have enough short chain fatty acids, we have overactive dendritic cells. And these dendritic cells are cells in the gut that sample everything and they really determine our immune response to food. So when they're overactive, you react to lots of foods. You overreact, right? Um, so you end up with a lot of food sensitivities. So we need those short chain fatty acids to make sure that we're responding to food appropriately. We're not overreacting to food. We're not getting more food sensitivities. Um, and if we have any short chain fatty acids left over, if we have an abundance of them more than the colon cells need, then they can have very beneficial systemic effects. So they they so they work localized in the gut, but then they can also have far-reaching effects throughout the, the entire body. They can lower inflammation. Um, they can increase the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, so they can protect your brain. Um, they can increase insulin control. Uh, it has a quite a profound effect on metabolic activity. They can upregulate mitochondrial function, giving you more energy. So a lot of a lot of effects but you have to be making a ton of them you have to first feed the gut and the colon and then if there's any left over then they have those um those full body effects so basically we have to produce a ton of them and in order to produce a ton of them we need those beneficial bacteria um, like bifido strains so we have to be eating a ton of fibers to feed the bifido strains um and fibers include soluble fibers, insoluble fibers, pectins, gums, mucilages, resistant starches, um, and prebiotics, which selectively feed the good guys. Um, and honestly, even after the devastating effects of antibiotics, bacteria can reproduce as long as they have good food sources. Um, these prebiotic fibers and different types of fibers and wide diversity in fibers really give a um, competitive advantage to our good bacteria. So it's so gosh darn important to include ton, a ton of these things, okay? So the first class of, of foods that really nourish the microbiome are all the different types of fibers. The second class are non-carbohydrate molecules. They're polyphenols. Polyphenols are the chemicals in plants that give plants their color. They provide many health benefits. Um, they have antioxidant-like effects because they upregulate the body's natural antioxidant sy uh, systems. They include ligandins, uh, phenolic acids, anthocyanins, flavonoids, flavanols, flavones, isoflavones, tannins. Again, they don't get absorbed by us they're too large to be absorbed, but they get all the way down to the colon up to 95%. So most of the polyphenols we're not absorbing with our human bodies. They go down to the colon and our bacteria consume them. They use them as food. So it keeps the microbiome healthy. It keeps it robust and diverse, all the things that we need to do. Okay. So now I'm going to give you some specific foods to start incorporating, because like I said, I kind of glossed over this in the constipation episode. And I know that this list might sound a little overwhelming because it's a lot of different foods. Um, and this is why I encourage you to sign up for the carb compatibility project, because I'll take you through meal plans that actually incorporate these foods. So if you're feeling a little lost, I got your back. 
but here we go. So polyphenol rich foods are basically any foods that are gonna, that are highly pigmented. Black, blue, red, purple, green, yellow, orange, even um, brown. So if you think about the skins of almonds or flaxseed, those contain polyphenols as well. Um, we can't rule out herbs and spices and all the things that we're cooking with, right? Um, for people that don't love to eat veggies, I usually think it's because A, they're not using enough cooking fat, B, they're not salting their food enough, and C, they're just not using enough herbs and spices. So cloves, dried peppermint and spearmint, star anise, oregano, sage, rosemary, thyme, basil, parsley, marjoram, these are, you can use them fresh, you can use them dried, celery seed, caraway seeds, curry powder, ginger, cumin, cinnamon, um, cacao, cocoa powder, and dark chocolate all have lots of polyphenols. So does coffee and so does red wine. Same with black tea, green tea, matcha powder. So start to think about the beverages you're consuming, right? Those deeply pigmented be beverages are going to provide polyphenols. Um, chokeberry, black elderberry. I have a recipe for elderberry syrup on my website so you can make it yourself, save a ton of money. And you're getting those anthocyanins, those deeply like blues, blacks, um, those polyphenols. So you're supporting your immune system with the elderberry syrup, but you're also supporting your gut. Uh, black currant, red currant. Now those are harder to find. I did find a source where you could order red currants, uh, frozen red currants, organic online. So I'll, I'll link to that if you're interested. I think I'm going to order some and like start throwing them in my smoothie. Pomegranate and pomegranate concentrate low bush blueberries. So the low, blo uh, low, low bush are wild. They're not planted by humans and they have different properties than cultivated blueberries. So uh, main wild blueberries, those low bush, you know, like they're like the little blueberries. They have the highest antioxidant content over cultivated blueberries, but high bush blueberries are still good. Still can consume them as well. Uh, cherries, blackberries, black grapes, strawberries, raspberries, plum, prunes, all different types of apples. Uh, the different colored skins will have different polyphenols. That's why it's good to rotate out your species. Apricots, peaches, nectarines, blood orange. Obviously, there's many different types of citrus fruits. Think about carrots, um, purple carrots, red carrots, red potatoes, sweet potatoes, purple sweet potatoes, red cabbage, red lettuce, radicchio, um, red onion, right? Think about all the purples and the reds in your foods, escarole, endive, spinach, broccoli, all of them are very high in polyphenols as well. Things like capers and olives, you've got your black olives, you've got your green olives, they're going to have two different types of polyphenols. Um, even extra virgin olive oil will have po a high polyphenol content. Flax seeds, chestnuts, hazelnuts, pecans, almonds, walnuts, black tahini, getting all those raw nuts and seeds in is really important. And then for grains, any, any of the colored grains like red rice, black rice, uh, red and black quinoa, all of those colors mean they have 
good polyphenols. And then we'll talk about prebiotic rich foods. Now with these, these you, you definitely want to start low and go slow, especially if you're not eating a ton of fibers right now. Some initial bloating is normal when you start first introducing fibers and fermentable foods into your diet. Some passing of the gas is normal because um, you just have to sort of get your body adjusted to the intestinal fermentation that's happening. So a little bit of bloating, a little bit of gas, pretty normal. Um, that's why we want to start low and go slow so you can kind of acclimate your body. But if symptoms go beyond just a little bit of bloating and passing gas, you might need to take a, st a step back and investigate if there's something else going on in the GI tract. This is most notably true for folks with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because the bacteria are fermenting these fibers in the small intestine and that instead of the large intestine, and that produces a ton of symptoms uh, feeling nauseous after you're eating, significant bloating, uh, belching farting, all those glorious things. Okay, so just a heads up there. Start low, go slow. So we have inulin and FOS, um, which is a type of prebiotic fiber, and you can find those in foods in Jerusalem artichokes, also known as sunchokes. I have a um, fridge full of them. Thank you to my neighbor, Julie. I know she listens to this podcast, so shouting her out. Um, I got to get my prebiotics in. Globe artichokes, um, Yakon, I never know if I'm pronouncing that tuber right. Yakon, Yakon. You can also buy uh, Yakon syrup and use it as a sweetener, and that has very high inulin content. Burdock roots, chicory roots, dandelion roots, garlic, onions, leeks. It's not a bad practice to just cook up lots of your food and onions and garlic. It pro provides a ton of flavor, but it also provides these really necessary fibers for your microbiome. Asparagus, lentils, chickpea, hummus, and pinto beans are all great sources of FOS. And then we have galacto-oligosaccharides. And these different categories are going to feed different beneficial in your gut. So it's uh, beneficial bacteria in your gut. So it makes sense to mix and match and eat things from all these different categories, okay? Legumes, so beans, you know, you're, you got your beans. Um, the brassica family, broccoli, cauliflower, all that jazz, beets, sunflower seeds, and pumpkin seeds. I'm looking at my pumpkin seeds right now as I say this. Um, and then we have prebiotic-like foods that are not technically considered prebiotics, but they can enhance the growth of good bacteria like your bifido species, brown rice, carrots, unpeeled carrots is best. So if you're in the habit of peeling your carrots, stop doing that. Eat the peel. They have great um, prebiotic fibers in them. And um, if you buy baby carrots, I would recommend that you actually just buy regular old carrots and chop them up into bite-sized pieces because you'll get those extra um, microbe-feeding constituents. Uh, we also have black currants, dark cocoa, almonds, and green tea. So all good things to work into rotation. And then finally, we'll talk about resistant starch. Um, there's four different types of resistant starch, RS1, RS2, RS3, and RS4. And resistant starch is exactly what it, it 
sounds like. It's starch that resists digestion. So our bodies don't digest it. It gets all the way down to the colon and then our bacteria eat up the resistant starch and it's great for everybody. So um, getting a variety of resistant starch is important. Um, RS1 is found in grains, seeds, legumes, um, soaked overnight oats is pretty high in RS1, buckwheat and sorghum, right? So if you eat, eat grains, I highly recommend re uh, rotating out all the different grains that you eat. RS2 is found in raw potatoes, plantains, unripe bananas, so the, the green bananas and legumes. Um, you can find it in Bob's Red Mill potato starch or plain plantain fiber, but here's the deal. They have to be unheated in order for you to get the benefit. So if they're cooked into baked goods, they're no longer resistant starch. Okay. So some people, there was a, there's definitely a trend of, um, adding potato starch to smoothies and just eating it, um, eating it like just raw like that. Um, I, this is not something that I would personally do because I've seen some research that says that can actually promote weight gain and like feed the wrong bug. So I'm just a little bit weary about that. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of skip over this one just because I don't really enjoy eating green unripe bananas and, uh, I'm certainly not going to add raw potato starch to my smoothies, but you can eat plantains and you can eat legumes and get some RS2 that way. And then, um, RS3 is considered retrograde starch. When certain starches are cooked and then they're cooled, the starch changes shape and becomes indigestible. So it reaches the colon intact and it's the cooling process that turns that digestible starch into resistant starch. So, um, purple potatoes, yams, uh, regular white potatoes, sushi rice, long grain rice, other types of rice. If you cook them and cool them, they are high in, um, resistant starch. So think about, and you have to, you can't reheat them because that will then make the starch not resistant. So potato salad, cold rice salad, um, lots of legumes like black beans, adzuki beans, red lentils, chickpeas, kidney beans, peas, fava beans. You can make a cold bean salad. That's All those things are going to be really high in resistant starch. Okay. And then the final one is called RS4. It's made through a chemical process. I don't really re recommend consuming it. You've got plenty to work with, with all of the things that I just talked about. So I hope that cleared up some confusion about how to like really appropriately feed your gut. It's not just about drinking kombucha and eating yogurt. It's really more about plant fiber diversity. And again, if you're needing some help on how to include this in your diet, sign up for the carb compatibility project. We go way beyond just carbs. We talk about the gut microbiome and all this fun stuff. All right. See you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you 